Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I, I love that you hate that you love that book. Because <laughs> it's really fun to hear you talk about it. Well, it's I would say I'm hate reading it, but I'm still enjoying it so much. So, I'm, I, yeah, we'll see. I, I, I'm, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to read all six of these things and then decide I hate them. Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 105. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Today, I'm excited to chat with Ryder Strong a director and screenwriter who spends free time reuniting with his readerly college friends on their books and reading podcast, Literary Disco. You may know him from Boy Meets World, but now, as a busy dad, writer says his reading life needs work, in his words, and the books he wants to read have multiplied from a single shelf to an entire room. Today, writer and I discuss being baffled by YA, the ingredients for a good bookish discussion, the book writer hates to love, good TV versus good books, and much more. Let's get to it. Ryder, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. And it's so great to talk to another literary podcaster today because there aren't that many. I was going to say, we're, it's a pretty small world. I right? know. There's it's... like a million pop culture podcasts and the books and reading, it's a much smaller genre. Yeah. Yeah. We have such avid listeners who write to us and tweet to us and stay in touch with us. And I'm sure you have you know, even more because us readers need to stick together in a world of television and movies. <laughs> I mean, I love television and movies. One of my recent pet peeves, just to cast myself in a really negative light, I get cranky when people talk these days about TV is a waste of time, read books instead. I want to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Some books are a waste of time, but, but let's not write off TV because there's some really amazing, I mean, TV is written entertainment. So no, I agree. And I mean, I, I, and I, yeah, it was, you know, I was actually when when um, because, you know, my, my podcast is our uh, we all met in uh, getting our MFA at Bennington. Like we're all uh, friends from our writing program. And I remember we were in that writing program, like in the era of Mad Men. And I remember like all these writers sitting around being like, TV is so good now, <laughs> you know, because it was really that was the first show. You know, it was like that and The Wire and like this era of like, wait a minute, TVs can be or TV seasons can be like novels. You know, they can have these these character arcs that take nine episodes to pay off. And, you know, and, and I just remember it was sort of a revelation, especially for the older writers, like our teachers, you know, people who had been teaching writing for, you know, hundreds of years. And, you know, they, they, it was, I, I feel like in earlier generations of readers and writers, it was so easy to just be like, oh, TV and movies are for, you know, plebeians. And we, we're, we're the intellectuals who read, you know, real stuff and, and don't watch these things. And I just don't think that's true anymore. Like there's so much depth and meaning in your average well, not your average, but in good TV shows, I get so overwhelmed by like an average episode of of House of Cards. I'm like, I need to like study up on who's who because I can't remember. I can't keep it all in my head. It's like it takes real mental work to watch these shows now. Yeah. So there's amazing storytelling happening in that format, which is awesome, but also really inconvenient if you just want to like reclaim a huge chunk of your life to spend more time reading because you can't just be like, ah, TV, it's out because there's amazing storytelling. Okay, let's back up. So I know you through your podcast that you mentioned, Literary Disco, and it's been on my radar for some time. But even so, I have not been listening 
to since the beginning because I've been listening to podcasts since. I mean, you started like back in the dinosaur age. Was it 2012? Uh, yeah, somewhere around there. 2011, 2012. Yeah. It might even have been. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Okay. I mean, only crazy in the sense if you if y'all don't know anything about podcasting. Um, that was before the common era of iTunes. I would love to hear the origin story. What made you decide to start a podcast in 2011 when nobody was doing it? And especially not forget NPR and Slate, like just for a regular person to be podcasting in 2011. That didn't happen. But it did for you. How? Yeah, I you know, I was just an early adopter uh, as a listener. And I think it's part it's it's in response to not being able to sleep. I started to just listen to podcasts at night to go to sleep, you know, because um, it started with music and then audiobooks, and then I just wanted to consume more content. So I was really early listening to podcasts back in 2008, 2009, when the whole concept of, you know, downloading content and uh, it was more complicated then and, and not as accessible. <laughs> I'm picturing myself with my iPod, like, as big as a deck of cards, plugging it into my, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it would also like my, my iPod would fill up because, you know, it could only hold so many megabytes of information. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a pain, but I got really into podcasts. And back then podcasts were very casual and that's kind of why literary disco is stalled in its casual phase. So the, my two co-hosts, Todd Goldberg and Julia Pistel, the, uh, we all went and got our MFA together. That's how we met, um, at Bennington. Um, and so we were all writers. Uh, Todd is a fiction writer. I was also going for fiction, but uh, now I primarily write scripts and, uh, Julia was a nonfiction writer and we just, you know, we came from very sort of different backgrounds, but we loved books and we would just stay up until, you know, the wee hours of the morning in our rooms uh, or in our dorm rooms uh, at Bennington and just talk. And we had such funny conversations and, you know, our, our taste was similar enough, but from a very coming from a kind of different place or a different perspective uh, that I was like, you know, let's just start recording these and see what happens. And so we recorded it. We recorded our conversations for, I would say, like, three months before I felt like, you know, let's put this out in the world. And we started to do it. And um, now it's grown into, you know, I mean, it still is very casual. Like, uh, we've never had advertising, we've never, you know, moved on to a, a network or, and we're still debating whether we can do that. Um, right now, Julie is about to have a child and Todd keeps coming out with books and I keep working. So, you know, it, life takes over, but we, we still really love it. And yeah, that's the, so the origin is basically late night conversations in, in grad school. I think there's something to be said for a casual podcast. And this wasn't, I mean, this was the norm back in 2011, 2012, but like we were talking in my house the other night about how when I started blogging in 2011, which felt late, but wasn't really in the big picture, I cared deeply about it looking really professional. And now I don't care at all because I think people are so used to consuming really high caliber content put out by companies that to find out a real person is making something because they love it is really refreshing. And now I'm, I'm totally good with looking like a real person. And that's something I really love about your show is that you do feel like you're overhearing a really nice conversation, like the kind that makes you want to lean over at the coffee shop and hear what those people are talking about. Cause it's maybe more interesting than what's happening at your table. Like I really like that aspect to it. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of why it stayed that way is because I mean, we, when we've tried to do interviews even, and you know, and we do, we have some good interviews, but we've done a couple live shows and frankly, I'm like not that into the performative aspects. I really like just, and you know, it, and this is part of the thing about reading, right? Like reading is a sort of a lonely behavior, right? You're, you're isolated. And, um, and so when you're talking to other people about books, like that's why I think book clubs are sort of small gatherings and, you know, I don't know it's as opposed to, I don't know, other forms of content or media. Like, I feel like you talk about them in a public forum and it becomes a much more sort of open discuss. I don't know. Books are, books are intimate and they are small. And I like that. Um, you know, and the fact that there's three of us already feels pretty big. Um, we, uh, we love it. Okay. I'm sure you get this all the time, but literary disco, where'd that name come from? No idea. We, I, we, we had, we'd already, you don't know. Uh, I said it one time. I just said, um, literary, you know, I threw out a couple literary weirdo terms and uh, I think uh, actually, if I'm honest, a friend of mine, um, a couple of friends of mine uh, have run a bookstore in Santa Cruz for years, Santa Cruz, California, right near the university there, because uh, a lot of my friends went to college there. And um, I'm friends with the owners and it's a bookstore called Literary Guillotine. And that 
was in the back of my mind because I just love that that the title of the bookstore and I don't even know where that comes from. But so I threw out like literary something because lit I knew we had to have books in there or, you know, just so people knew what it was. And yeah, for some reason, I said the literary disco. And then uh, Todd and Julia were like, I love that. And we don't really know why, except like that maybe it just feels like because our goal was always to be high and lowbrow at the same time and to not not be afraid of either. Do you know what I mean? Like to not to not be to never say like, oh, we're being too pretentious or too intellectual or academic about something. We welcome that. We embrace that because that's part of our exercise. But then at the flip side, to not be like, uh, well, we can't read that because it's a kid's book or we can't read that because it's lowbrow. Like we read everything. We talk about everything in every way we can and enjoy it. You know, and and so I th for some reason, the idea of a disco just felt right. Like, and combining the word literary and disco just felt like the right tone. I don't know why. And it's, it's stuck. So. Okay. So you can do, so you can love Jane Austen and Veronica Mars. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's always been our goal. It's interesting how it's evolved over the years as we've gotten to know each other's taste better. And the three of us, like we definitely are limited in our view of, of what we, you know, but, and it, it, it seemed like we were sort like super omnivorous when we started, but I feel like once you start doing a podcast and talking to other people and you get feedback from your fans, you realize like, oh, wow, my my actual reading life, like there's so many books out there. There's so many different ways and different things to read and fans of everything that you just realize, like no matter how omnivorous you are, you actually are still very limited. Um, so I'm very opinionated and you know, limited in my reading, of course, but I try not to be. Now, when we select stuff, we're mostly taking listener suggestions or trying to vary what we read, uh, because what we realized early on is that people didn't like it if we just picked books we wanted to read and, and we liked them. All of our, the, the, the most successful episodes were the ones, you know, as far as listener feedback and was when we read like A Sweet Valley High or when we read The Hardy Boys and like when we hated books, like we tried to read a choose your own adventure. And, and like we, we, when we read books that, uh, Oh, the one of the best was Flowers in the Attic. You know, that's like one of those books that everybody read when they were a kid, but nobody actually remembers if it's any good. And spoiler alert, it's not. But like it was an amazing, you know, so what we realized is that those are the things that people want to listen to is, is, you know, us discussing books that we might not necessarily love because when we like a book, when all three of us like a book, it's kind of like, eh, all right, we all like it, right? Okay, move on. So our taste is beside the point. It's more about just our discussions and, and what kind of fruitful, hopefully some insights that we can have about the act of reading this, this book. So how'd you end up at, at uh, Bennington? That's a good question. I, I, I guess, you know, I, I had been an actor for, for all my childhood and adolescence. And then I went to college and I loved it so much. I just wanted to stay in school and I had graduated when I was 24 and then I just kept taking classes and then finally um, I decided to actually get a degree out of it, um, mostly because I, you know, I, I'm still still writing and, and directing and um, and stuff like that. But I've always loved the idea of being a teacher and I'm sure I'm going to teach somewhere down the line. So I wanted to have a degree. Um, and so I looked into the different MFA programs and of course there's so many amazing MFA programs, but I really, because I was still at that time maintaining an acting career and a writing career, I needed to, um, do a, a low residency program. And Bennington is probably the best low residency program in the country, uh, which means you just do, you work on your own a lot and are in constant communication with the teacher. And then you go about every six months, we would go to the actual campus and be there for two or three weeks doing intensive workshops and giving lectures, listening to lectures. And it was sort of like a summer camp atmosphere or winter camp, depending on which season it was. It was really fun. Um, and it was, uh, you know, a life altering experience. And the, the, the people that I encountered there, you know, not just Todd and Julia, but a huge community of great writers and thinkers. And it was fun. It was really, really great. Um, and then, yeah, now, so now I have a degree and, you know, Someday I'll, I'll probably be teaching full time because I really I I really love it. What do you see yourself teaching? Writing, definitely writing. Yeah, um, I mean you know, that's that's what an MFA can. I, if I had gotten my PhD, I could be teaching English literature, but that's that's a lot more work. So <laughs> a lot of work. That's, that's what I live for. So this, you know, that's. Yeah. Uh, but, but right. I actually, I'll probably end up teaching screenwriting cause that's where I've had the, the most success and you know, um, that's probably what, yeah. Or film filmmaking. I mean, right now I'm most qualified to teach acting, but I have no desire to teach acting. It's just not, I, I like talking about acting and I like theorizing about it. Um, but I don't think I would be a very good teacher. Why is that? Or what is it that makes you think like, no, I do not want to do that. 
on my Tuesday mornings. You know why? Here, if I'm honest, it's because so many acting classes are full of crap. Like I just think that acting is 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 a it's a tricky area, and I uh, as an art form, like you, it's hard to teach, and I wouldn't know where to start. I mean, writing is obviously very hard to teach too, but I feel like because I've taken a lot of writing classes, I've spent a lot of time in that world. It just makes sense to me. Whereas acting. Um, you know, and I love actors, like good actors are amazing. And I, I you know, want to direct more and I love directing actors and working with them in that context, but teaching somebody how to act, uh, that's, that's, I just don't think it's my thing. Um, and I guess that's because I've had a lot of, I've been in a lot of acting classes where the teachers don't know what they're doing or the students don't know what they're doing. And it makes me so uncomfortable. Um, so it's just not my thing. On the whole, is it less perilous to teach writing than it is to teach acting? Is it easier to give some kind of value as a teacher to the student in one field than the other, do you think? Okay, here's what it is. I just figured it out. It's if you criticize, I think I think it's much easier for students and teachers to separate the work from the artist when it comes to writing. Like it's I can look at somebody and be like, hey, you're a fine, lovely person, but you really just wrote a crappy short story or this poem is awful and let's move on from it. And here's why, you know, and, or, you know, whatever. Whereas with an actor, it's personal. It, it's, it's a much more delicate dance that you have to do to separate the work from the person because it's like, you're not right for this part or, you know, you approach that scene horribly and, you know, suddenly can feel like I am, my voice is weird. I'm not, tall enough or short enough or beautiful enough to, I'm not, you know, it's like acting is so much more about it's using your body. It's your voice. I just think, and, and like, I, I mean, that's why I can't be an actor anymore is that it's just, ugh. it's like, it's so much of you and you are sort of the instrument via or through which your art is coming. Like that is just, so I, you know, that's a, that's why acting classes are kind of tense and weird places. And they always have this sort of like self-helpy, vibe to them, you know, where it's like about your confidence and, uh, you know, taking chance. And I, I just have no interest in that space, like living in that space as a job. Um, I, you know, I, uh, no, thanks. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Now that you say it, some readers are very, and on this show, like we ask guests to share a book that was not for them, a book they didn't love. And a lot of people are really uneasy to go there. And I can understand why, because a real person wrote that book. However, the fact that the book is separate from the person is much easier to see than like the actual human embodying the performance on the stage. So as a reader, do you feel like you are able to separate the work from the person? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, I have no problem saying a book is horrible. That, <laughs> that doesn't mean that the person writing it is horrible. Usually maybe there are some times where I'm like, Oh, this person sounds pretty awful, but no, no, that's no, I, I, yeah, I, I'm very, very outspoken in things I like or don't like. And, and I have no problem, I, I think, saying that to somebody's face. I mean, not without being mean about it. But, <laughs> yeah. Can you give us a broad brush picture of what your reading life looks like at this point in your life? What do you read? When do you read? Why do you read? My reading life needs work. This has been my thing lately. I, I, I So I, I have a son who's two and a half and basically the last year has been me realizing I never have time to read. I, you know, I used to just find myself reading. It was just where I, you know, it was sort of like my, if I had a moment to myself, I would be reading. Um, and what you realize when you have children is that you no longer have moments to yourself accidentally. You have to intentionally find moments and seek out time because otherwise it's all about, either complete relaxation because he's finally asleep or not, you know, not needing your attention. Um, in which case I immediately turn on the TV or a movie or something that doesn't require as much imaginative brain power. So, yeah. So, I mean, I'm just in a place right now where I need to figure out how to be more intentional about my reading. Um, so, cause I, I've never been the type that reads before I go to bed. Um, but that actually is now the best time for me to read. So I need to start carving out at least like a half an hour in bed to read, which I am not doing. Um, so lately what I've been doing is reading the first when I first wake up and that seems to be the best is like I wake up and don't even get out of bed but I make sure that my book is right there and I get at least 20 minutes in my whole day is better 
you know, it's like, it's like the, the exercise that my, my, my brain needs. Um, so yeah, that's, I, but I need to work on it because I haven't been able to read like right now I am only reading because of literary disco, like, because I'm forced to finish something in time for us to talk about it on the show. Um, uh, so right now reading feels like homework, which sucks. Like I'm, I need to get back to a place that I was pre sun where I was, um, just finding myself reading, like just, you know, the, the act of relaxing involved reading. Ugh, I need to do that more. Okay. So you said that when you read for 20 minutes in the morning, it makes your whole day better. Do you think that's because you feel really great about something you accomplished or that it does something in your headspace? Yeah. So the thing that I've been dealing with so much, and I think we all are, is this, the iPhone tablet habit of reading. Um, like for me, it's Twitter and the news and this this inability to follow a linear train of thought for more than five minutes i can't you know i my my idea of uh you know i'm because i'm reading text all day long but i'm flipping through it i'm uh scrolling through it i'm clicking onto the next thing i'm clicking on a link within the thing i'm reading that leads me to another thought i'm you know on facebook sliding through a news feed that is not the same style of reading. That is not the same brain act. You know, like when I read a novel or a poem or something that requires me to think a lot, you know, to allow somebody else to carry me along their, whether it's a fictional dream that they had or whether it's an argument that they're making that's linear, that is going in one direction where I have to turn the page and stay with them for more than five minutes. Like I just, we just don't do that enough. And I need to be, um, and when I do that, uh, my whole day is better because I, I feel like I can focus more with people and uh, on conversations more. And the way I think when I'm quiet and on my own, like I'm, I'm starting to think in those linear terms more. Like I just, I, I think it's like essential that we all do this more. So that's that, that, you know, and then yes. And then I have accomplished something too, in the sense that like, Oh, I got some reading done when I, cause I have so many books, you know, I'm like my to read is my to read shelf is now a to read room. It's like all over the place. I've stacked, like I'm swear I'm, I have stacks of books surrounding me right now. Um, so it's ridiculous how many things I've said like, Oh, I got to read that. And then I just haven't gotten to it because I don't have the time. So it's, yeah. it's a problem. I mean, there are worse problems to have, but it's a real problem if you love books. Okay. I'm dying to know what you're reading now, but we have a way to talk about that. So if you're ready, here's how this works. Okay. You are going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately. And then we'll talk about what you should read next. You ready to dive into your favorites? God, yeah, this is hard, but okay. If it was, if it was easy, <laughs> you, we probably wouldn't be books and reading podcasters. So exactly. exactly. <laughs> What's your first book writer? So a book that I love, love, and I've always loved since I read it, um, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, is uh, The Book of Daniel by E.L. Doctorow. Uh, that's one of my favorites of all time. Have you ever read it? I have not. I've only read the one that everybody's read by E.L. Doctorow. Which is Ragtime, right? Yes. Which I have not read. So I'm, <laughs> I have to read that because I've heard it's great. Well, how did you pick up The Book of Daniel? Uh, I was actually assigned in a college class um, when I was when I was in in school. And um, it's just stuck with me. I, I, I've only read it twice, probably. Um, so uh, on like the next book we'll talk about, I've read many, many times, but, um, but I, and I, and now I want to reread it again, but yeah, so it's a great book. It's a, um, fictionalization of the Rosenberg trial. Um, but told from the point of view of one of the Rosenberg's, uh, kids, which I guess in real life there, there, there were, uh, there was a two, there were two sons of the Rosenbergs in this book. It's a son and a daughter. It's, it's a, it, he, Dr. O is just a master of taking like fiction, uh, taking historical periods and, um, real things and making them, uh, fictionalized in them in a fascinating way. But so there's, there's the level of just like American history, interesting look at, um, how it, he, he follows Daniel as a kid when his parents were accused of espionage and then ultimately executed for for espionage uh, with Russia. Um, and then as an adult, he Daniel becomes a protester for against the Vietnam War and sort of joins the 60s counterculture movement. And and that is true, I guess, that that this one of the sons of the Rosenbergs became very involved in anti-war stuff. So it's like 
you know, it just covers these two eras with a really interesting character. So there's that, that historical level, but then there's also the writing of the book itself is fantastic. And it's very self-conscious because Daniel is narrating it, um, but he's also always talking about how he's narrating it. So it's one of these sort of meta fiction novels where it's, you know, he's constantly saying, I don't know if I can write about this part of my life this way. So I'm going to try a different tactic and I'm going to try and tell you about this this way. And so the book is constantly shifting from like different tones and different modes of writing. And, you know, as a, as a writing geek, I love that. Like, I just love that watching Dr. O play with different ways to tell a story within the same book. And that all those different ways add up to a story in, in a sense. I love um, actually two of the books I want, that I'm going to talk about have a multiple narrator tone and like or multiple narrator. I guess actually in this case, it's not multiple narrators, but uh, multiple voices and, and modes of writing. I love the books that do that. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. Okay. What's your second book? The one you've read however many times. Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner uh, is just like it's I can't I can't stop going back and reading it it's like this weird I don't know it's like I can never wrap my head around the book completely which I and and I have to compulsively go back and and reread it and I enjoy it on a sentence by sentence just like a sensual level it is so beautiful it's like there's sentences that last whole chapters and it's weird and you know I love Faulkner's style like it's it's it might you know i think a lot of people think it it could be too mannered or um hard to sort of get through but for whatever reason i can't get enough of his voice it's it's almost like a biblical voice too you know it's very inspired by the king james like tone of uh it's it's very ornate it's it's a little overwrought but i love it and um and absalom absalom i mean i've read everything by faulkner and absalom absalom i think is is the best of the best and i can't I can't get enough of it. I always, like every couple of years I pick it up and I have to reread it. Um, and I can never quite understand it. I can't tell you like why or how I just know I need to go back to it and read it again. There's something essentially, there's some, there's something about America really, really important about America and race and gender. Like it's all in there. Um, but it's not reducible to like a simple aphorism. Like I can't say like, this is the story of, how racism is bad. I mean, obviously it is, and and Faulkner believes so. But there's something more complicated going on, and the um, yeah, and the history of the South and America. It's like it's all in this book, and I I don't think it's reducible to an essay or a couple sentences. You just have to read it if you haven't. I highly highly recommend it. How many times do you think you've read it? Uh, probably five or six. How much do you know about William Faulkner's Hollywood Interlude? Not much at all, actually. Okay. I read an article in the esteemed literary publication, Garden and Gun, a couple of years ago that really shocked me. It talked about, it was called something like William Faulkner's Hollywood Odyssey. And if we can find it, we'll put it in the show notes. But it talked about how, like, in the depth of his literary success, he went into Hollywood, and I do not remember why, but I remember reading, he got paid a lot of money to write scripts at MGM. And I think he needed money, right? Like he was, it was not a good experience, right? I I would totally believe the money thing. Oh, it was something to do with, so I think this was right after Sanctuary was published and before he would have written Absalom, I think if I'm getting my fault in our timeline, right? But I just remember reading these anecdotes about how it was amazing to watch him work. He'd come in, they'd hand him a script to be like, this might be unsavable. We can't do anything with it. We're not sure what to do next. And he'd just be like, oh, well, this is clearly the plot. Just tidy it all up that his plotting brain was insane. And I just had no idea. I just pictured him smoking his pipe in Mississippi. Right. <laughs> and drinking his whiskey while he's writing. Oh, absolutely. At 830 in the yeah. morning. This is what I pictured. Yes. <laughs> right. There's a character in Barton Fink. There's a character that I think is supposed to be based on William Faulkner. It's like the drunk Southern writer. I have to, it's been years since I've seen that movie, but I remember. So that's what I have in mind. Whenever I, I, there's a scene with this like older writer and, and Barton is like so excited to meet him because he's a Southern novelist that he loves his work. And this guy is like super cynical and just drunk and awful. (laughs) And so I always have this idea that Faulkner was miserable in Hollywood, but I don't know if that's actually true because that's based on a fictional representation that I heard was based on him, but my, might not. I don't know, but I'm 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 curious because that's 
I mean, obviously I'm in the entertainment industry too, and and I love Faulkner. So like the idea of of those two, uh, those two, I have to, I have to read more. Yeah. I, I, you know, I tend to like, sometimes I, if I really love an author, I tend to not want to know more about them. <laughs> and Faulkner is one of those people like the, this, cause didn't he like lie about his war record and like, there's stuff that I'm like, I don't know if I want to dive into who this guy actually was. I just want to live in his fiction and not, not go too heavy on who the person was. Sometimes I feel that way. I don't know about his war record, but I do know that the Garden and Gun Literary Journal does go into detail about his per- personal life, which is not one you'd want to take as your model. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, hmm, so maybe I'll keep that link to myself. What's your third favorite? Um, my third favorite is a book called uh, Butcher's Crossing by John Williams. Uh, do you know this book? Well, here's what I know, because I looked it up right before we talked and found that Kierkegaard called it when it first came out, an odd book with no particular motivation or direction. <laughs> really? Yeah. So that really whet my appetite. Yeah. <laughs> That's... Tell me more. I don't know it at all. Okay. So this was something that right when we started, like right around when we started recording Literary Disco, this author, John Williams became, he was like this. So he, he, he wrote books. Um, God, he was a, he was a teacher of writing and he had written these novels that had mild success, but he, for whatever reason, he never broke. And then around like 2000 or the early 2000s, someone, some publishing company decided to re-release. And I don't know as much about Julia is the one who turned me onto this, or my co-host, Julia Pastel. She brought up on Literary Disco one time. She's like, there's this guy named John Williams that's being re-released. His novels are finally getting the attention they deserve because he had written a few novels and then kind of, you know, just lived a quiet life and died. And, and now people have rediscovered him. And so I devoured these two books that he wrote, one called Stoner, um, and the other called Butcher's Crossing. And I loved them both. And I would put Butcher's Crossing up there. You know, like I said, it's, it's one of my favorite books of all time now. Uh, I've only read it once. And this was two or three years ago, maybe more. It's a Western. It's uh, a young intellectual over-intellectual in a way, like somebody who's read way too much Emerson and is obsessed with transcendentalists and like being in nature, coming coming to the West to like be a cowboy in, uh, gosh, I want to, it's, it's got to be 19th century, but I'm not sure when. Um, and uh, he is already kind of too late. Like the myth of the West has already been told. And uh, he ends up having this sort of crazy experience going on this um mission to hunt buffalo with these two other men and um so the book is sort of a i'm realizing now like i really like books that kind of tell something big about the american experience but in like a very limited story the way that like absalom absalom does like this is this is the story of like the american west uh and the and all the the it's kind of like a reverse manifest destiny you know the the book is really um, sad and tragic and awful. And it's about the exploitation of the natural landscape. And of course, um, the, you know, the, the, the fact of genocide that, you know, we've already wiped out all the native Americans hangs super heavy over this book. And, um, you know, this young idiot essentially, who's, thinks that he can go and just sort of live this cowboy lifestyle and, and find something about himself. And what ends up happening is so tragic and disgusting and horrifying. Um, and it's beautiful. It's wonderful. And, um, and it's sort of like, it's actually, it's most like Moby Dick. Um, it's, it's not as long, it's shorter, but it's just as dense. And, um, and it follows a sort of, um, you know, uh, quixotic, like somebody who's obsessed with something in this case, this guy who's obsessed with having a cowboy experience to a really unfortunate end. Um, and, and it's, so it has a lot of the similar themes to Moby Dick. So I, I would highly recommend it for anybody who likes Moby Dick. Okay. Writer, change of pace. Tell me about a book you don't love. Well, the, the, the one I can think of, I mean, right off the top of my head is because we did a whole episode of literary disco about it and it became notorious because I was like the the guy who hated this book that everybody loved. And so I thought I, that would be a good one to bring up, which is uh, The Fault in Our Stars by John Green. You read my mind because my first question was going to be, was it a podcast episode? Yeah. Did Julie and Todd like it or were you 
Did you have company? No, they didn't like it either. Uh, but they were certainly not as harsh as me. I, you know, and, and honestly, like it's been a couple of years, but I just remembered that the episode was was controversial in that a lot of our listeners loved that book and a lot of people love that book. And I actually never saw the movie, but a lot of people also love the movie. And it's one of those areas that's tricky because when you're criticizing like criticizing a popular book, yeah, whatever. But when you're criticizing a book that was popular with young readers, it's hard because uh, you want to support people reading no matter what they're reading. And so I'm a little, you know, I'm conflicted about that. Like, I definitely think if, you know, like if my son, when he's age appropriate, whatever, 12 or 13 or however old you should be before you read Fall in Our Stars, like, and he likes it, I'll be like, go for it, dude. Like, read it, love it, you know, read everything John. And, and I, and so I feel bad criticizing it on that regard, but I thought it was just horribly written and the, uh, yeah, uh, the, the the whole cancer, which I didn't realize that the kid with cancer is actually like its own kind of genre. Uh, I don't know if it still is, but certainly when Fault in Our Stars came out, it was. It was just it just struck me as self-indulgent and condescending to young people. There was something smug uh, in the tone of the writing. Uh, it just really, really turned me off. So not just that you weren't a 16 year old girl, but that you didn't think it was a good book. Exactly. And um but then I also am not a 16 year old girl. So what am I, you know, <laughs> I, it, it, and that's the thing. And that's what was really hard about hating the book is that it's like, Hey, if, if, if this is the book that a 16 year old girl reads, like, as opposed to what being on Facebook or Instagram for a few hours, like I would w much rather every 16 year old girl read this book. So, um, and that was, what was so interesting about it. And then it's, of course, like uh, green himself has this very like, um, cool online presence where he has all these followers and he does these videos and they're very educational and um, he's very supportive. Like at the time, I remember he had this whole like pro nerd thing, you know, where it was like, I forget what they called themselves, but he had like an army of uh, fans who, you know, it was all about like, it's okay to be a nerdy teenager and it's okay to read books and it's okay to think deeply about things. And I love all all of that. And I felt like the book misrepresented that because um, there was something in the actual writing itself that I thought uh, betrayed a sort of uh, condescension. Like I said, I, I felt like he actually doesn't think much of teenagers in the way that it was actually written, like that the, 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 there was a like I said, a smugness or something, um, something that didn't, didn't give teenagers enough credit. Have you read any books that are explicitly marketed as YA? Like not just a book a teen could read, but one that's really marketed to teens that you have really enjoyed? Oh God, that's a great question. I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I'm trying to think. Yeah. I mean, I have a hard time with that as a category, to be honest. I don't understand it as a category. I don't think that books should be to, like what because what does that mean does that mean that we put less pressure on the writing why like why should we like i don't i mean i don't understand i mean in genre in general i feel like is, is 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 a weird concept because the second you say like oh it's just romance novel then what is like what does that mean that means that you're willing to forgive bad writing because you're reading it for for what like romance or sex or like i don't like it should always have good writing, shouldn't it? Like, shouldn't all writing be good? Like, if I'm reading a crime novel, I still want it to be well-written. Um, and I guess YA, like, in my mind, YA is weird because I understand children's books, right? Like, I understand, like, limited vocabulary and a lack of violence or swearing or, you know, things that, yeah, an eight-year-old shouldn't encounter. Like, when Winnie the Pooh should not, you know, include certain things and should be written to a certain grade level. I get that. But... When you're talking about YA, which I feel like is more the, what, 12-year-old to 18-year-old zone, yeah, I have a hard time with that category. I don't I, – I haven't read one that I really liked, um, and I'm one of the few people alive who has not read any Harry Potter books, so uh, I miss that whole thing. I don't know. Do you have a favorite YA book? I have some I've read that I've enjoyed. So, and my whole family recently went through Love and First Sight by Josh Sundquist. I was just wondering, I was trying to get a beat on if the whole genre just wasn't for you because a YA book, we actually have a podcast guest who was on very early, Preston Yancey, who said that he loved a good YA book and he felt like a YA book explicitly should be melodramatic, 
super saturated, over the top, should be explicitly trying to make you feel all the feelings. Like that's what a YA book was. And if you weren't all in on that, then you just need to avoid the genre. So I was trying to get a feel for, I was feeling pretty good about not recommending you any like best-selling YA titles, but I was curious to hear if you ever went there based on your thoughts on the John Green book. No. Yeah, I guess I don't. No, not by choice, certainly. And <laughs> And I and I that's interesting. That that's a really cool perspective that he gave because yeah, I, I mean like like that describes exactly why I don't like YA. And but you know, I, I mean, maybe it's just because as a teenager I sort of skipped that phase. But I also don't think when I was a teenager YA existed in the same way it does now. YA is a relatively new category of of a book and um i'm a little baffled by it i i would yeah i would rather books sort of just be for everybody once you're at, past a certain age like once you're past the point of you know can i handle adult themes or stuff especially when you're talking about like cancer and death like in fault in our stars like i would rather that be dealt in a completely adult way even for a teenager i don't know I think you're right. And that when I was a kid, I don't think this was its own section of the bookstore either. It's interesting how that has changed. Okay. Writer, what are you reading right now? <sighs> uh, I'm reading like, <laughs> I have, I have, like, I'm in the midst of a couple different books, but the one I just started and I'm only two chapters in is Jennifer Egan's new book, Manhattan Beach. Yes. How is it so far? So far, it's amazing. I, I love her. I think she's like right now, you know, I know everybody's reading this book and talking about it, so I feel like I'm just a little drop in the bucket of, of uh, book talk right now. But she is has been one of my favorite contemporary writers, um, and and I think as far as like sentence by sentence, she probably is my favorite contemporary writer. I just love how she writes, and this is a, this is different. This is a you know because it's a period piece. Um, which her other books are, are very much set and, you know, they're written. Um, this one it already so far is so different, but she just has a way of like drawing me in. I, I absolutely, I care about every single one of her characters within a, a paragraph or two, which man, like people just can't do that these days. Um, you know, without it being like a life or death situation, like she, her characters are not hanging on a cliff when you meet them or about to, you know, attack a vampire or whatever. Like, it's all very basic human stuff. And yet I care so deeply within moments of meeting her her characters. And that is wonderful. Like, she's just the best at that. Um, so, yeah, I'm reading that. And then um, and then I'm reading a um, we had a, a recent poetry a couple poetry episodes of literary disco that got me back into trying to find contemporary poets who I like. And so I'm reading this, this collection called equilibrium by a woman named Tiana Clark that I'm loving. It's, it's pretty political in the sense that she's very much like the, the, a lot of poems are sort of centered on identity politics and questions of intersectionality and, you know, what it's like to be a black woman and live in today's world. Um, it's, it won a prize. It's, it's, I, I, I found it because we, we had a, we listened to a poet on literary disco named Hanif Abdur, uh, Abdukarab, who blew my mind. He's like this amazing performance poet. And so I started following him on Twitter. And like whenever he recommended somebody or retweeted somebody, I went and bought their book and she's one of them. And I am totally on board. So I'm loving that. That's a really interesting rabbit trail. Yeah. And then the, uh, the other third book I'm reading right now, which is like, okay, have you heard about the whole Knosgard or Knosgard books. Do you know about this? Oh yes. What it's my struggle struggle. Yes. Yes. I hate that. I love these books. <laughs> I are the most absurd things I've ever read in my life. Like, so the, the first one, you know, I picked up because I saw it on somebody. I like, I got the whole story and I was like, this sounds horribly boring. I will hate this. And then I devoured the first book a couple of years ago. And then I was like, well, because there's six of these books, there's six of these just like meandering, self-indulgent, like European writerly guy things. And yet I, I can't stop reading it. Like, so I picked up the second one about a month ago 
Um, uh, I was on vacation with my family and I was like, oh, I have a couple minutes while, you know, my in-laws were watching my son. So I was like, what am I going to read? What am I going to read? And I'm like, well, let me just start this book because I'll, I'll, I won't be able to, you know, it, it won't hold my attention. And it just drew me right back in to his nothing, like nothing happens in this man's life. And yet I can't stop reading, which I guess is a sign that he really is a great writer. Um, as, and I don't know if it's just me, like, or, I mean, obviously it's not like he has this sort of hold on a, a few other people, but, um, I'm trying to get like other readers that I really love in my life to give him a try and tell me that I should stop. Um, because I think it's, I can't decide, like, what, what's interesting is that he's, he's such a good writer, but as a person, like his life is actually kind of, um, boring and very self like, he, you know, he's very self-indulgent. That's the point of these books is that he's just writing about being a writer and going from like one writing workshop to another and like dealing with his kids and his wife. And it's like, I'm looking at it and going, well, here I am, you know, as a, a, a writer myself and someone dealing with my life and my kids. And it's like, why is it just that I like reading about somebody who reminds me of myself or is it just an act of self-indulgence? I don't know. Uh, Cause I'm not sure but every once in a while he has these insights that I'm like underlining and like writing notes down on the side and the back of the book being like, yes, that is exactly the way I've always thought about this thing or, or I'd approach it from a different angle, but he has a way of putting it. So there's something there, there's something there, but man, it's, it's, it's a lot of reading because I'm only on book two and there's six of these things so far and I'm, there's no end in sight. Your timing is fantastic because I'm most familiar with these books because just recently on episode 99, Caroline Weaver came on. She actually, if you're this kind of nerd writer, she owns a shop that is dedicated only to pencils on Orchard Street in Manhattan. And it is amazing. So, and I think you could hand her your favorites and she could hand you hers and you both could be very happy. Like she reads really verging on pretentious literary fiction is how she described it herself. I wouldn't put that label on it, but that's how she described it. She tried to read these and she's like, oh, so <laughs> exactly everything you said, but she fell to the side of like, you know, life's too short. I got plenty to read. I am walking away from these. This is why I love readers because you have the same, I mean, overlapping taste, definitely, but totally different verdicts on a book. I really would have expected both of you to really enjoy. Okay. Well, I, I love that you hate that you love that book because <laughs> it's really fun to hear you talk about it. Well, it's weird. I would say I'm hate reading it, but I'm still enjoying it so much. So I'm, I, yeah, we'll see. I, I'll, I'm, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to read all six of these things and and then decide I hate them. So go figure. In 2024. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything you want to be different in your reading life before you eat, add books to your TBR? What do you mean? Do you, like something that I should, a, a genre that I need to read more of or? It's deliberately open-ended. Anything you want to change. Anything you want more of. After this conversation, I should probably read more YA. <laughs> I'm not recommending you YA. <laughs> well, I, but yeah, like I, I need some good YA. But that's not fault in our stars. Like, so I, I should because I, I like I've mostly besides fault in our stars. I'm trying to think like I, I think I've read sections of the Twilight books. Uh, I'm trying to think of other YA books that people have. And I, I guess I haven't. So um because we read Flowers in the Attic, but I wouldn't categorize that as YA. So I'm trying to think on Literary Disco what YA we've read that that would have exposed me to like good, and I that I haven't done it. So I really should stop bashing it uh, without reading more. I'm very curious to see where we land with you. Me too. Writer, are you ready to talk about your books? Yeah, let's hear them. Okay, so basically I feel like we're looking for literary fiction with excellent characters. And I am really hanging on what you said about books that say something big about the American experience in a really specific, narrowly defined way, because just great literary fiction is, that's not enough to go on. So that's why I'm really zoning in on that. But first I'm, I am trying, I said I was going to recommend YA, but I'm thinking about it. Please do. The problem, not not like being able to stare at my shelves right now, like I'm staring at a blank corner of my office where I have some orange penguin paperback classics, but they don't print YA books in those. I'm wondering about something that probably a whole bunch of girls and women read called What I Saw and How I Lied. Um, this is a scholastic 
National Book Award winner for young people's fiction. It came out about 10 years ago. But it's a YA book that is marketed as YA to 12 to 18-year-olds. But if I didn't know that going in, I'm not sure I would have known that necessarily. It's a story about, well, I don't want to say what it's about. It handles some themes that you wouldn't see in Winnie the Pooh, okay? But right, it right. does it more gently than the current contemporary all-in MFA literary fiction would address the same themes. So a, a lot of action that might appear um, on stage in adult fiction happens off stage in this book. But it's called What I Saw and How I Lied. It's by Judy Blundell. And it's about a family that moves, I think, from New York City to Florida in the aftermath of World War II. It involves issues of love and marriage. Keep wanting to tell you what, but that gives away a plot point. And the love and loyalty, um, secrets from the war. And also it's interesting how a major theme in this book set in pretty recent memory is the ostracizing of certain families because they're Jewish. And there's a love triangle situation that develops and it all goes south. And then a teenage girl is left to decide whose side she wants to be on and how much of the truth she wants to tell because the outcome is all in her hands. And Oh, this sounds amazing. 300 pages, really quick read. And the tone is, I want to say qualitatively, but that's a scary word. The tone is very different from the kind of YA books you're describing. Like when I said, Preston came on the podcast and said, a YA book should be melodramatic, super saturated, all the colors. Like it has this really bubbly, bouncy feel. This book does not feel bubbly and bouncy. And I think that's a good thing for you. Definitely. Definitely. All right. What I saw and how I lied. I love it. Um, so, but moving on to your actual book one, Cormac McCarthy. Have you read All the Pretty Horses? Oh, yeah. Yes. I love it. I love it. <clears throat> yep. That's a great, yeah, great recommendation. Okay. So I'm in the yeah. right wheelhouse. What, how do you feel about nonfiction? Uh, I love it. I, yeah. Have you read A Spy Among Friends? Is this a book you're familiar with? No. Okay. This is a book that I somehow managed to not know about for many, many years. But then I read Pamela Paul's memoir. Do you know her? She's the editor at the New York Times Book Review. She had this book come out this summer called My Life with Bob, which is not the world's greatest title, but Bob is her book of books. And what she does is look back on the just simple journal filled with a list of the books she's read that she's kept for many, many years now, since she was a teenager or college student. Oh, it's so smart. I wish I had done that. <laughs> I'm going to start now. That's a painful book to pick up because you do think like, oh, I wish I'd done that. But but she did it and she writes about it and it's lots of fun. And also she writes about some of the books that have been most important to her. And that's how I came across this book. And it is, it's by Ben McIntyre, a spy among friends. And this is like a real life thriller about Kim Philby, the, uh, the high level British spy who turned out to be a double agent for the Russians. So this book is not new, but it's, <laughs> This would be a very interesting time to read it. And critics have said that it reads like a story by Graham Greene or Ian Fleming or John Le Carre, that it's almost too, too good to not be invented in a novelist's mind. But it's the story of how he went to Cambridge and how he became a, a spy for Britain and how he was exposed. And it's full of very polite kind of uh, hijinks and cigar smoking and men's club chumming. And there's a whole lot of drinking, whole lot of stories over drinks. And actually that's a major plot point. Oh, I'm totally going to love this book. I can already tell. Awesome. Well, I found it from Pamela Paul and she said that the funny and amazing thing about books is how often you'll be talking to another reader who will say something like, the Philbies, we knew them in California or something like that, that she had a very personal connection to the people in this book that she didn't Interesting. realize at the time until after she'd read it. And then this real life story that the truth is definitely stranger than fiction here for her to have that personal connection to kind of blew her mind. Okay. A Spy Among Friends, Ben McIntyre. Awesome. All right. The next one, I feel a tiny bit terrible recommending to you because it's not out till April, but it just seems so perfect for you. So 
I don't know if you've read anything by Hannah Batard. Listen to me is probably her best known. No. She, she is a, she teaches creative writing and I believe fiction at the University of Kentucky in an MFA program. So she has a book coming out in April. It's called Visible Empire. And I just read this recently, so it's probably top of mind to me, which is why I can't, can't not recommend it to you. But the book opens with a plane crash. It's that of Air France flight in 1962. It's a charter jet flying from Paris back to Atlanta, and it holds everybody important in the arts community in Atlanta. And I'd never heard of this before. So I thought, did she make this up? Is this a plot device? Did this really happen? But a quick Google search confirmed that, yes, she's writing about this real life event and building her story from there. 1962, this is a key moment in the civil rights movement in a city that was in tumult over what was happening in that time. And the way she hones in on a few real people dealing with this tragedy that really shook their community to its core. She uses multiple narrators, which is really interesting and something you've said you enjoy, to examine issues of race and class and the importance of art in a time of crisis. And I think it's for you. Oh, that's so up my alley. What, do I have to pre-order this and sit around and wait for? <laughs> I might have a galley I can send you. That's awesome. But it's for you. Great. Thank you. Yes, that sounds incredible. All right, book three. Surely you've read this, but if not, I really hope we, we need to make sure this happens. Let the Great World Spin by Colin McCann. Mm, yes. Yes, I have read it. Great book. Great book. And great recommendation. Yeah, because I loved it. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm glad I'm on the right track. What about Richard Russo? Um, I've only read... Empire, um, Empire Falls. Yes, mm -hmm. Empire Falls. I've read Empire Falls, um, and that's it. And I wasn't a huge fan, but mostly because Todd Goldberg is obsessed with it, and it's like his favorite book of all time. So because we host a podcast together, I have to be on the other side of. But I did. I did. I mean, I tore through it and loved loved it at the time. Um, but then when we started discussing it, um, you know, it's like he brings it up every every other episode <laughs> of the show. So I have to hate it. But. Um, is that what you were going to recommend or was it another Russo book that I should read? Well, I was debating between that and Nobody's Fool, which is another story about a down on its lock town in upstate New York. But it zones in on one specific citizen. And by doing that, he managed to tell a story that's universal by focusing on one human character. And so I don't know that he's, I mean, it's Russo. He's probably saying something big about the American experience. But what I like is that how he's saying something big by focusing so closely and carefully on a very small community. I love it. All right, I'll check it out. You don't have to tell Todd if you like it or not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, yeah, because I think Todd, I mean, that he, Todd's obsessed with him and has loves everything everything the man has written so um and partly because of that i think i've i've refrained from reading it anymore but i will definitely check this out okay i have to put in a weird comment about richard russo the man writes some of the best acknowledgments i have ever read in any books at any time <laughs> anywhere they are seriously so good so start with the acknowledgments and see if maybe he can like crack open the door to your heart your friend's, you know, obnoxious love of his work aside. Right. You know, you know, partly why I remember not not loving Russo, too, was that I was writing my own fiction at the time. And he has um, he he's a, he he reminds me most of Charles Dickens. It's like this sort of omniscient narrator voice that um, he's so uh, straightforward and sort of like. Like his prose itself doesn't conceal anything. It's actually an act of like, it's like very storytellery sort of presentation, I guess is the word I'm looking for. It's like, here's what's happening. Here's what this person was thinking. Here's what this person is going. And I remember that that was not helpful to my own writing because that's is kind of the hardest writing to achieve. Like to be good at that, it, you know, it's almost easier to pick a narrator and to sort of filter your storytelling through that character. And, and I remember like I decided I couldn't read him while I was writing my own stuff because, uh, but you know, that's also being a 26 year old writer as opposed to now being 37, I could probably handle it. So 
But yeah, that's that's interesting. I got to give them another chance. I'd be curious to hear what you thought now, 11 years later. Yeah. Writer of those books, what do you think you'll read next? Well, I can't read Visible Empire next because that that's definitely at the top of the list. Uh, I'll go for um, I, I'm going to do the YA book. I really now I'm inspired to um, to give myself to give YA another shot. Uh, I'm excited you're going to read that. I'm so curious to hear what you think about that book. And then you can tell me what you think about that. All right. Awesome. Thanks for talking books with me today. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is great. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ryder today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Ryder and let him know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 105. That's 105. And it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Check out Ryder's podcast, Literary Disco, available wherever you get your podcasts. You can visit them online at literarydisco.com or on Twitter at literarydisco. Readers, one of the easiest ways you can support the authors and podcasters you love is to write a review. It's free, it's quick, it's easy, but it makes a big difference to us. If you enjoy What Should I Read Next, I would appreciate it so much if you would review it on Apple Podcasts. Your review makes it so much easier for book lovers to find our show. If you enjoyed my book, Reading People, How Seeing the World Through the Lens of Personality Changes Everything, would you take a minute and leave a review on a site like Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or Goodreads? Your fellow readers rely on your reviews to decide what to read and listen to next. And that's why writing a quick review means so much to your favorite authors and podcasters. Thanks in advance. I appreciate it so much. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.